Before we start the show, I wanted to say thanks for listening. We want to bring you the best show we can, and sometimes it takes us a week or two to cut, edit, and present you something polished. But if you're the kind of person who wants to hear the long version with no frills and wants it as soon as possible, we're now putting our Ready Player 2 episode reviews on Patreon. Pay as much as you think is fair and get access to uncut episodes just hours after we record it. Join our community of gunters at patreon.com forward slash get to the good part, no spaces. Now, on to the show. This is Aaron from the show. First of all, thank you for listening. Once you finish listening to this episode, do us a solid. Go ahead and give us a rating and write a review of the show. This lets us know that we're doing a good job and helps other people find us. And speaking of other people, if you know someone who might enjoy the show, we would love it if you told them about it. We can be found at gttgp.com. There's tons of stuff on there. You can learn more about us. There's an episode guide. And of course, you can find our social media pages, where we love geeking out with our listeners. Now, let's get to the good part. Welcome back to Get to the Good Part. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. And we left off with really kind of on a down note, a cliffhanger, if you will, or a life hanger. So, well, because of course, we know if anybody was going to survive that, it was going to be Artemis, right? And I'm sitting here reading that and I'm going, why? Why her? <laughs> like I said in the last chapter, like, is she an amateur skydiver on the side that we don't know about? I mean, come on. We don't know. We don't know. But we do know is that everyone thought she was dead. Everybody, after seeing the explosions on the news, the giant fireball, come on, Z. No one could have lived through that. Z said it perfectly. He said, despite how Samantha Cook was often depicted in movies and cartoons, because why not? She wasn't a superhero. Right. In the real world, she was just a regular person, a geeky Canadian gamer girl from the suburbs of Vancouver. She couldn't outrun giant explosions on foot like Rambo. Wow, it seems like it seems like he was underestimating her as much as you did. I'm still saying that it's highly unlikely that if that were a real situation, not in a book, that she would not have survived. Well, before we get to that point, Anorak shows back up to give his most sincere apology. Not even really an apology, just just kind of a, hey, sorry that your friend died. Bum deal. But also kind of a, and I told you so. It's that moment where it's like, hey, I, I didn't think she's going to jump out of the plane, but but she did. And how dumb was that? Again, it, it seems like you side with Anorak on that one. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue with that logic. <laughs> it's a very, it's a very machine-like logic. How's that? It just feels like the the human side of the argument of like, well, I didn't think she was going to jump out the plane. Therefore, the only thing I had to do was smush the plane into her. That's not really a very human response. It's a very, it, to me, it felt like, it very much felt like Terminator is going and hunting people type thing. Well, but the Terminator wouldn't apologize for it or wouldn't uh, try to come back and say, I don't know, actually, the way that it was written was really well in, the, in that, that it, it kind of shows that at this point... Anorak's character within the Oasis has a total disconnect and disregard for life. All of this could have been a bluff. And at this point of the book, you've got to prove that this isn't a bluff. So we had to take this turn. Can we? Do we get rid of a character? Uh, no, I don't, we can't do that, obviously, this early in the book. But uh, we, we have to show that he's serious. And we also have to show that he has a complete disregard for life. Uh, so Anorak coming back and saying, you know, I'm calling to express my condolences for the loss of your friend. It's more a matter of saying, now you know I'm serious. And gosh, it's a bummer, because I liked her, and you liked her too, and we have that in common. But I'm serious. You know, I'll kill everyone if I need to in order to get what I want. Which, you know, as the log- logic progresses, you know, when they kind of press Halliday's avatar to express the why, and he comes back and says, you know, why should I care about who lives? Why do I care that I killed 12 people, 11 people, whatever? And and Samantha Cook, why why should I care? You're all dead anyway. Love the reference. As he's referencing back to the Terminator movie. 
And and the logic there is just, you know, you, you're you're going to be extinct soon. You're doing it by your own hand. But here's here's the real problem of that logic. Anorak's already expressed the fact that he wants to live, even though he might believe that everyone's going to go extinct soon and that just killing a bunch of people doesn't make a difference. He needs those people for the Oasis to exist. He needs yeah. people to survive. He can't just kill everyone. Killing everyone is killing him. You yeah. know, the Oasis can't survive without the power companies supporting it, without, you know, the, the technicians that keep the software going. And more importantly, if there's no one left to finance the thing, even if you have a handful of people that are keeping it going, what's the point at that point, right? It's a very similar concept to the whole everybody can't be a member of the elite class because somebody's got to be the janitor. Somebody's got to be the street sweeper. We can't all be CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. This to me feels very similar. If there's nobody to keep the power stations going or the power plants going and paying Oasis fees so that the Oasis can even continue, mm-hmm. you, there's no Oasis. There's no there's no nothing. So it's very short-sighted on this anorak to be like, hey, you're going to die. So like, what's a few more dead people? Yeah. And, and if they really wanted to call him out on it, they could just sit back and go, this is how, isn't how this is going to go. We're all going to die. And uh, so will you. If you're already accepted that we're going to die and you're right, then why should we even press forward? Yeah, that would be the real bluff caller there. Right. And maybe he would just continue to kill people like a hostage situation until they became active. Uh, he he felt he was doing them a favor. He's like, well, they you know they're dead now. They don't have to wait around to die anymore. It's like, whoa, yeah. So that's that's interesting logic. It's it's a bit of a trope, I think. That this this sort of hostage situation trope. I'll kill every last one of them. What? What? No, you won't. You've only got so many. It reminds me very much of the FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss and a number of the the talks that he does. And he did he did a number of TED talks. He did a master class on hostage negotiation. And and really, it's it's kind of like you know negotiating in business as well. How to understand and and to negotiate with somebody who is otherwise hostile towards what you're wanting them to do. And this idea that that he can strong arm them when the reality is that he depends on them. It's kind of a matter of, you know, who values it more, right? Or who's going who's gonna to bluff more? And he needed this moment in order to prove that he was serious before wisping away into the, the ether and letting them, you know, s- circle in on their own frustrations about the next, the next shard. From that point, from, from his point of view, like, yeah, he had to. Because if he, he didn't want hadn't... to. You had to, but but if he kind of said, "Nah, fine, I won't kill her," but that, that I'm not, but next time I will. Then why would they take him seriously? Yeah. So, like, I I get it. If he didn't follow through, it's this gaslighting. She, you know, she forced my hand. She made me do it. It wasn't me that killed her. It was her that made me kill her. I didn't want to do it. It's this very sort of strong gaslighting. And for those that don't know gaslighting, it's it's when you recognize that there's a problem and the person whom you're recognizing that with turns it on you and blames you for it. Uh, even though it's very clearly the fault of, of the person whom you're addressing. Why is gaslighting called gaslighting? I don't know. Why is it? I don't know. I, I thought you would know. Thought, my my only guess me. would be is that sometimes if you're trying to light a gas fire, it'll like blow up in your face. And it's like, well, <laughs> you tried lighting a gas fire. I don't know. I'm sure it's somewhere on the internet. I'm sure it is. It's derived from the title of a 1938 British stage play, Gaslight, which was subsequently produced as a film, Gaslight, in the UK in 1940. So it displays some of the basic elements of this particular technique. So it's literally referencing a movie. Ah, that's cool. That's that's kind of interesting. Like, I wasn't sure if... It's fun to go down that path, uh, that there's actually... What they're doing is a reference to a movie in a book that makes frequent references to a movie or to many movies for that matter. It's kind of like when you ready player one, somebody. Uh-huh. <laughs> when you make like a shitload of references uh-huh, and they're exactly. lost. Yeah. And then, then people like make podcasts about it. Yeah. Yeah. So before he leaves, he, he basically tells them to get the work kids. Very condescending, 
very condescending, which causes Parzival to just light up in flames and and shout back at him, you'll pay for this, you son of a bitch. You so-and-so, you'll pay for this. It's the you'll pay for this trope. Mm-hmm. Which they recognize because, again, obviously they've seen way too many movies. You know, I keep thinking at this point, how would you make him pay for it? I, I feel like we're inching towards a, a situation wherein the only real way to get rid of him is to figure out how to wipe out the whole thing. How to, how to, basically, how are we going to go press the red button? This, in this chapter, uh, you know, they're obviously forced to press forward, but, you know, that you'll, you'll pay for this, you son of a bitch. It's like, how? Yeah. I mean, there's really only one seemingly clear path to the how part, which is got to press the red button. And that maybe, maybe Halliday had put the red button in there knowing that there would be a time when this can happen. Because that question comes up, I think, a few times even, like, why would they put a red button in? It would, it would absolutely devastate the economy. And there's only one reason to do that would be if it was more a danger to the people in the Oasis than anything else. And here is a story that is evolving into that. <laughs> to me, it was you like... You can't say anything, can you? No. Uh, I, <laughs> dude, it's been so long since I first read the book. Like, I really just... I barely even remember the Cliff Notes version of it. But I don't know. I kind of feel like pushing the red button to get to kill this Anorak, like he doesn't suffer. No, but he can't make others suffer further. And right now, with as much control as he has, but I would doubt he would give up the robes. I mean, he would have to give up the robes for somebody to push the button. Maybe. But like, how, but like when you think of like the. When you think of the idea of like telling somebody, oh, you're going to pay for this. Mm-hmm. Usually that comes with some level of, you know, like retribution, suffering, like, you know, tit for tat. Like I'll, I'll make eye. you, I'll make you suffer as much as you've made me suffer. It's, it's, yeah. it's revenge. And like it, for a digital life, so to speak. How would, if, how would you make a digital life suffer? Yeah. If you just kind of pull the plug on them and they stop manufacturing their ones and zeros, it's not like they're going to feel pain. They're just going to stop kind of calculating. They're just going to stop being, and they won't even realize it. When a human being is about to die, right? Like at least they, and I've never had this moment, but like when you, when you know you're near the end, I, that's got to be a very, especially if it's not under good circumstances, you know, like that's, that can't be a good feeling. And especially if it's, you know, accompanied by pain or anything like that. Like if somebody is slowly torturing you, you know, that like that's payback. I <laughs> that's, suppose. That's what, how, would, payback. how would you enact payback on a, on a, a digital persona, a digital consciousness? I don't know. Cause like when they're kind of in an all powerful situation like this, all you can really do is, you know, short of pulling the plug on them, uh, what can you do? What can you do? <sighs> I think you could isolate them in a memory and then put it on a loop. You could do that or you could do the, uh, you know, like what was referenced in the previous chapter about the TNG episode with Moriarty and the put him in a simulation in a simulation so that he thinks that he's right. existing. But, but that's not really suffering though. Unless that, unless there's a lot of, unless you're like programming in, oh, and, and by the way, it's, it's. Unless there's like the big reveal. It's like, aha, you are just in a ship. You are on a ship in a bottle. Oh yeah, that could be, that could be torturous. Is that um, knowing that they are in that, that like you put it a ship in the bottle or in that little cube, if you will, knowing that they can't get out, knowing that their world is fake and maybe there being a window to the world that, that is true. That would be pretty torturous. Because I, I think here, when I think of it, I think of it as a matter of, you know, if you have a consciousness, but we're dealing with a realm of programming, you know, how can you handle it from a programming perspective? So for me, looping them over a bad situation over and over and over again would be insidious. But I do like the idea of sticking them into a small container and then giving them windows to see the realm that they can no longer get into. I like that quite a bit. It sounds like a Twilight Zone episode to me. It does. And just as Parzival flips out, Anorak says, that's the spirit, and you better get moving, because time keep on slipping, 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 slipping into the future. So 
in the way that I like to do things, I I looked into okay, it's a pretty good reference there. You got Steve Miller Band, mm-hmm. Fly Like an Eagle. So I like did what I would always do and like let's look at all the lyrics to this thing and see like what we can tie back to the rest of this book, right? right. I don't know if you did the same thing, but I certainly did. For and this, I had not. I kind of figured you would. Of course. I'm that predictable. I was hoping you would. Let me put it that way. So I pulled two verses out and had some notes about them. The first one, I'm not actually sure if what I pulled from it actually really makes sense. I might have been reaching a little bit, but the second one, I think, is a little bit more relevant to the to what I thought it was a pretty good reference to. So let me start with the first one. Okay. I want to fly like an eagle to the sea, fly like an eagle, let my spirit carry me. I want to fly like an eagle till I'm free, oh Lord, through the revolution. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but I wrote down that this verse relates to Halliday's kind of quest to have Parzival find the shards and to make the siren whole. And now that I read it again, I'm not quite sure why I had that. <laughs> I think maybe it's because like the it's the I want to fly like an eagle till I'm free. Mm-hmm. Like he wants to be free or something, and I don't know. Well, you know, it's in, in reading the lyrics here, fly through the revolution. And you can look at a revolution as being something that's cyclical, right? But I kind of wonder if this is more a matter of like a social revolution, right? I want to fly like an eagle till I'm free, fly through the revolution. And, you know, and he is describing, you know, basically the, the woes of society feed the babies who don't have enough to eat, shoe the children. With no shoes on their feet. That's actually the part where I was re- uh, reading the lyrics and I'm like, that sounds a lot like Artemis trying to solve world's problems. Right. Like with her foundation. Right. So I, I, it kind of makes me feel like this is one of those things where, you know, somebody wants to escape, wants to escape and fly through this oncoming revolution that's going to to come up as a result. And that. That might be, you know, well chosen because we are talking about right now the edge of what could potentially be a a social revolution around the oasis and being trapped within your rig and people dying as a result. And again, it's not going to be everybody dies at the same time. Uh, people who would come on earlier uh, are going to die sooner. Simple as that, right? So there's there is a good chance that you know as we progress on and get closer to the end, people are already going to start falling off. So this idea that that there's going to be a revolution and that, let's say, Anorak basically wants to soar through this. You know, he's he's maybe welcoming this revolution and he sees his freedom through the oncoming revolution that's going to result from this whole situation. I don't know. It might be a bit of a stretch, but I at the very least kind of like how the song touches on the fact that there are a lot of quote-unquote social issues both mm-hmm. outside of the oasis and you know within the oasis as well and that anorex basically just kind of sitting on top of it without really a care because he, he knows that they're all going to die he knows the revolution is coming he knows people are suffering and that people are going to to fall out so whether or not they die based on his desires being met it doesn't matter you know, he doesn't care about everyone else. He just wants to fly through the the inevitable. And I imagine he wants to do it with Kira. It seems so. Yeah. Anyways, that's just kind of my my take on that particular song being injected here. Because it doesn't exactly call out the fact that this this what this reference is to. So it's cool to kind of dive into that. Yeah. That's what we do here. So after the fact, after Anorak takes off, you know, we go back to the news. And, you know, we go back to wondering how anyone could survive this explosion, let alone jumping from a plane in an emergency parachute. (laughs) (laughs) But sure enough, familiar voice pops in and says you have to hit the ground running. And Samantha comes through. Like Forrest Gump. (laughs) And then keep on running and then hit the deck and, and, and suffer second and third degree burns. And potentially a, a couple stitches. Yeah. But 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 guys, guys, I'm okay. That's all. I'm okay. Yeah. Everything's okay. Everything's okay. So no broken bones. Nothing. So a little bit of relief here. Everybody's happy. Everyone's hugging. 
Parzival's like, boy, I wish I could say I'm sorry for everything, everything, everything. It, it, it basically, for, for a moment, everything is good. But sure enough, she drills them down to the fact that they need to get moving and figure out the next shard. We gotta which press is, this. We gotta press this shit forward. It's a pretty good strategy at this point. Uh, like times are wasting. Mm-hmm. One might say time keeps on slipping. Yeah. It was in her kind of uh, nudging along where she referred to Halliday slash Anorak as the Halliday Nine Thousand. Right, which is a two thousand and one reference. Yeah, and and I really like that because I, like I'm thinking about Ernest Klein writing this, and it pops into his head to use Halliday 9000, which is just absolutely perfect. Like he probably didn't plan that when he created the name Halliday. Mm. And it was just absolute, like that's just like, you know, stars aligning perfect reference. And the reference here is to, what is it? Hal 9000 from 2001. Yeah. And I think what this communicates just in this, this little, this little joke, this little jab, is that there's there is a distrust in in this this artificial intelligence that it could be monitoring them much as Hal did. So in the movie 2001 Space Odyssey they have to discuss about what it is that they're going to do and they know that it's what they're going to do um, isn't going to be kosher with the artificial intelligence on the spaceship. So they go into one of the uh, emergency pods to talk about what they're going to do because they know that HAL 9000 is listening. What they didn't realize is that HAL 9000 can read lips and he could see, it could see them talking within the pod through the window and could figure out what it was that they were talking about, what they were planning. So there's this this distrust that the AI in the machine can listen in on everything it is that they're talking about, what they're doing. And you should assume that. And you should assume that at this point. That even if he isn't nearby, maybe he has the ability to eavesdrop at a distance because they really don't know what his capabilities are. Even though the robes are limited to a certain extent as software, they don't know what he's capable of. So just just in, in that quick reference, what we're really saying here is that there is a distrust in the AI potentially being everywhere, if you will. Well, and also just an AI that started out pretty friendly. Right. And then basically kind of evil and tries to kill everybody. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, they're discussing turning off HAL 9000. Yep. So they're so trying to like figure out. Button. Yeah, that's exactly like the red button. And they're trying to figure out how to turn off HAL 9000 so that they can do what they want to do with the ship uh, that HAL would otherwise prevent them from doing. So so just this reference alone is a, is a pretty deep cut to a, a, a severe distrust of the AI within the system and also the similarity of them wanting to shut down Halliday. I thought it was great. I loved it. So we have this moment where Z looks at Artie and forces himself to not look away. And she says, hurry up, I'll rejoin you as soon as I can. And then she vanishes without waiting for a reply. And then... Boom. They immediately go into problem-solving mode. And this, again, is is part of the book that I loved from the first one, right? Was this troubleshooting where you get to go through the process of them unlocking this secret or, or decoding or deciphering this secret. And I like this because this is where my head's at in the moment. This allows me to start to, to brain crunch along with them. And what you have to do is you can't just have them snap their finger and go, I know the answer. You have to go down the wrong path in this in this kind of moment within the story. You you have to you have to come up, you know, and say that that's not right. And and chances are anybody that's familiar with the references that they start pulling out here, you probably back up and go, You're right, that that's not right. That's not accurate. We've got to pull back and do something different. You're not just reading it, you're thinking along with the characters. And that's possibly one of the most attractive parts of this book as a whole or the series of books as a whole is these moments where you as the reader are one of the characters and you are troubleshooting and thinking along with the characters and you're going down the wrong path with the characters. Or if you get it, you are absolutely elated when the characters come around and realize what you already realized is the right path. And that's what I love most about this book is these little moments. 
to me, this was pretty much the point where this book really started to feel like the first book a lot more. Like you were saying, the problem solving, troubleshooting, trying to figure it out, working together, which was kind of like a, more of a Castle Anorak, how are we going to get in there situation. And I started to enjoy this book a whole lot more from here on out because it just felt so much more like the writing that I think Ernest Klein does really well. Right. So they, they pull up the shard and, of course, confirm the fact that, that only Parzival is the one that can touch the thing. And they evaluate the shard's message, which is that her painting and her canvas, the one in the zero, the very first heroine demoted to hero. I mean, that's that's really what the team is going to be struggling with and, and trying to decipher. And I get it. They're distracted. Like, this shit's been thrown at them. There's pressure on them because people are going to start dying. They already saw like 11 or 12 dead people on the ground from from the plane crash. This is very, very real. Possibly more real than any devastation done to Parzival in the first book. You know, this this the threat of this far exceeds one of the stacks falling over, right? Yeah, I could see that. So I can see why this is very distracting and why if I was a character in here that I could sympathize with the fact that it would be very hard for me to switch into clue hunting mode probably a lot of things going through your head right now. The least of which is like, well, let me solve this little puzzle. So good for them for at least getting there. There's a lot of peer poking. Like, come on, Z. This, this can't be that hard. You know, you've got to have some ideas here. Something's got to pull you through this, right? Which is kind of a bit. It's kind of like, you know, a lot of pressure from the people around him to figure this out. When in fact, everybody should be like crunching on this. Well, that's the thing. It's like they all made it to the into the high five on their own. So why are they looking to Z like he's the only one that can figure this out? Yeah, like uh, it's like H saying it, it can't be that hard. Og found the second shard 10 minutes after he found the first one. It's <laughs> why would you focus all of the attention on one person solving this issue? You know, when everyone else is in their own right. And, and it might very well be that they're speaking for the reader. You know, that, that the reader's like, why are we stalling here? Why is this an issue? And we're setting up a situation where we can feel the frustration from Parzival's character where everybody else is relying on him. We, we could potentially be the reader here and the reader thinking, why is this so hard? Why can't they figure this shit out? But we realize here it isn't Parzival that's going to make the breakthrough here. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And we delve into one of the favorite video games of Kira's, which is... Sega Ninja. Sega Ninja. Well, at least that's what it was eventually called. Right. It was like Ninja Princess was Ninja the original Princess, yeah. was the original form of the game. And I went through and actually looked at the game here because they, they start to get into and drill into that. This must be it. This must be the game because this is the game where the original main character, which is the princess, gets turned into a guy who goes to save the princess. And it's the same damn game. It's just a gender swap in order to appease the the American video game audience, which kind of sucks, really, because when I think back as a kid playing games, if it's a good game, it's a good game. It's as simple as that. And I don't even think you'd have to say Ninja Princess. You could still call it Sega Ninja, and the character could still have been feminine or female, and it wouldn't make a difference. You'd still yeah. play it because it's still a, it could still be a kick-ass game. I mean, I was kind of in the same place that H was saying. Like, wasn't the first female protagonist in a video game uh, Seamus from Metroid? Yeah. It wasn't necessarily a female who turned to a hero. It was somebody, I think, that a lot of people thought that the main character was male because you're just in this suit of armor. And there's nothing about that suit of armor that really spoke as being feminine. No, it's just the, the big reveal at the end when she takes the helmet off. Right, right. And then you realize that this character was female all and the, along. And the thing was, like, you know, I remember being a kid seeing that happen and being like, okay, fine. Yeah. You know, like, 
Good game. You're not going to be offended at all. Really. I, I don't remember as a kid really caring. When you think back on it now, that's how they had to do it. They had to, it had to be this reveal at when you finished the game. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They had to sneak it in on you somehow or something. They, they, they needed to, it needed to be a situation where you would play the game and treat the game as the game itself, as the game was presented, the quality of the game being independent of any assumptions that if a guy saw a game that seemed to specifically speak to a female audience and as a male player, I might go, okay, well, that's just going to have rainbows and butterflies. Blah. Right. And it could be a very kick-ass game. And it was a fighter game, right? You're throwing, you're throwing knives. You're running around, throwing knives, throwing, throwing shuriken. That's right. At, that's right in line. So basically a, a shooter game, but with a, a female character that you're playing but again, if you you look at the game and it's like Ninja Princess and you might think, Princess, is she going to kill butterflies? And is there going to be like rainbow powers? Ugh, I'm not going to be interested in that. You might make assumptions based on the title of the game. But had it just been changed to Ninja and didn't change the characters at all, I don't think anyone would care. You, you wouldn't have had that presumption. I tend to agree. Because seeing the game, it doesn't matter if the character is a female or, or male represented. It, it, it's, a, it's a shooter. If you're looking at the game cabinet, mm -hmm. right, and you see somebody as badass looking as Ellen Ripley on the side, mm -hmm. you don't fucking care. That looks kick-ass. Yeah. Yeah, or Street Fighter, for example, has a number of female characters that you could potentially play. And I play them because they kick ass, right? I think this is just one of those situations where the company made a branding choice we would never have known about it because once we get it it looks like it was intended seems seemingly intended but I, I think what it does is it it shortchanges the creativity of the developer and it presumes that people aren't going to like it because the character is female when in fact it, the, what's really attractive about a game is the gameplay not not the genders that are involved in my opinion in my opinion right and and if a person makes assumptions about the kind of gameplay in advance, that's where you might have issues. So I get trying to like pop remove princess from that. Uh, but that they didn't have to switch the gender of the actual characters, even if they did reduce the name to ninja. Because at the end of the day, just looking at it, you're like, oh, it's a shooter. Okay, let's do this. You know, there are, there are no butterflies. There are no rainbows. Cool. There are no insert stereotype here. Right. I meant to watch some of the gameplay. I didn't get around to it, but I will have to do that at some point. We don't have to because the next chapter takes you through every damn board. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Won't get into that just yet. Uh, but they do end up determining that, that that is the game that they need to zero in on to hone in on. I, I mean, I think I fell into the same trap that they did. But then, of course, I was never going to figure out what the actual meaning of the riddle was. But, you know, I assumed just like they did that the uh, her paint and her canvas, the, the one and the zero. I mean, I assumed that was a reference to Kira. I thought, yeah, I totally thought this was a reference. I thought it was going to be a piece of art that she had first done or and I don't know where it was. I, I, the last part of the riddle, I don't quite follow as to how they would get again. I, I was kind of along with the characters in the book where I was like, I don't quite get the connection, but I was still thinking it was hovering around Kira specifically and not necessarily a game, which is dumb because let's face it, all the clues in the last book either pointed you to a movie or to a game. So why would this yeah. be that different? So Shoto's the one that kind of figures this out, nails it down. Everybody's like, we agree. This is what we need to do. And of course, there's a goddamn planet that has all of the games. It's near the center of the Sega Quadrant, called Phoenix Rye. Which, do you know what Phoenix Rye is? I do not know what Phoenix Rye is. It's actually another name for Rico Kodami. If you, if you look up Phoenix Rye, it, you get the wiki, I think, for Rico Kodama. And it's another name for her. Oh, okay. Also known as. It's an AKA. Okay. Yeah. Well, think about it. R Phoenix Rye, R-I-E. Mm -hmm. What are the first three letters of Rico Kodama? R-I-E. Oh, okay. Okay. 
That's pretty fucking cool. So maybe it's Phoenix Re or I don't remember how Will Wheaton pronounced it, but yeah. I was like, I, I thought it was like maybe maybe this is the name of like a planet that one of the games was taking place on. I'm like, no, it's it's just named after the person. Yeah, which like, is which cool. is great. Yeah, yeah. Rise of the Phoenix, right? I don't know. Yes. Yeah. 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 Totally. So it turns out they've pl- they've visited that planet, and that would make sense because you know that's where a number of those games are. Okay, so I think I got this from the uh, the wiki, but it said that. Kodama is known for contributions to games like Sonic the Hedgehog, which I've never played, mm-hmm. and the game called Altered Beast. And as it happens, when I got this, or when I got, when my family got the Sega that at one point came with Sonic the Hedgehog, we got it before it came with Sonic. We got it when it came with Altered Beast. So I've actually played Altered Beast and actually beat it. It's a very, very simple game. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, I think it's like five stages. You're kind of like this kind of buff hero guy who like keeps getting these power-ups and then turns into like a werewolf or a werebear and, you know, different kind of were animals and, until the last stage. When, and then very simple. I thought mm-hmm. I was like, oh, look, I can beat this game. I, I'm, I'm hot shit. Like, super <laughs> I, can, I can beat a game. It might be the only game I've ever actually like really beaten without help or codes or anything. It's so simple. Yeah. I've played some of these games. I think I've played Altered Beast because that rings a bell. Sonic the Hedgehog I've played a little bit. I had never played Ninja. Me neither. When I when I imagined the game, I actually imagined something like a side scroller. I imagined That's something what I like, pictured. I imagined something like Commando. And when they started describing the boulders and rocks coming down um, I was having a hard time imagining that on the side scroller, but when I saw this game in action, I was like, "Oh, okay, I get it." It's interesting though. Like I thought it was going to be a lot like, you know, uh, I thought it was going to be a side scroller, and then like, well, how else could you do this? And it could be going up the screen with the boulders coming down. This was going up at a diagonal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I imagine that had to be very hard to kind of know how to avoid those because, like, pers- like depth perception. Is, well, it's, it's hard to tell how it's going to land, or yeah, and, and there's there's it, it's it's kind of like you could be behind it or further up, and it could land away from you, but it would seem as though it had crossed your path. And it's very difficult to get this sort of this sort of three dimensional field in a two dimensional space. Yeah. Anyways, anyways, yeah, um, I, I, it was probably groundbreaking or near it at the time, but. I'm looking at it now, and I'm like, eh, it's, it's all right. Well, but to anyway. pick up, it's, so I want to jump back here, because the fact that, that they go to the planet Phoenix Rye, and now they are going to the portal, the Ninja Princess portal, this this is not surprising. And we're really nearing the end of the chapter at this point. We skipped over a very important detail. Okay. Before they go over into the portal and do all that stuff, Z doesn't have the robes. So right. he says to to Faisal, hey, you know those rings you gave to everybody else that basically gave them like super admin powers? Mm-hmm. I need mine. And that's this is what I wanted to jump back to, was that we have this moment wherein Z is struggling with his pride. And the way that that's shown is that he has to kind of ask for that ring that he turned down before because he had the, the robes, right? And that's kind of a moment for him. But what is mentioned within, but not really expressed externally, is the fact that he got the first shard from the low five. And he didn't want to mention that he paid a billion dollars to somebody else to find the shard. And that he would that would be his last resort. So we have this moment where his pride is going to kick him in the ass. Where he could have just immediately said, look, guys, it's been a while. I'm a little out of practice. I'm not as gun-tree as I used to be. I paid a team to find the first shard for me, and they're really good. A person. Or just a person, sure. But that they're really good, and we need to bring them on board to help us out. The more the more people, the better, because they found the first one. And that was evidently a difficult, that was a difficult find. Like, there were a lot of pieces at play there. So you'd want to bring on who you could. But he specifies here that that would be the last thing he'd do. And I can see this biting him 
in the ass real soon. I can imagine it because they're going to get to a place where he's going to everyone's going to draw a blank and he's going to be like, we got to bring in these people. And they're going to be like, how do you know these people? Why should we trust these people? And he's going to have to tell them, I might have paid them to get the first shot. There's going to be a moment of disappointment that he is going to have to face. And to push that off is going to be a detriment. It's going to lose trust when he has to be honest with them. You know, he's, he's going to have to have a moment where he's going to have to be honest with everyone. And it'd be better to be honest up front than to wait and to, to get to a place where time is clicking by. And and they've wasted a shitload of time and they're all stumped and they could have brought in the B team. So I feel like there's just a couple hints of Parzival pride that's going to bite him in the ass in the near future. We will see. Oh, that's, I can't that's say it. anything. That's, that's, your, uh, that's your input here is we will see. Not a, hmm, I agree with that in this chapter because I can't talk ahead. Yeah, at this point, like there's so many details that I just don't remember that I'm I'm sure. just going to play along. You're like, playing, like playing I'm, I'm, I'm going to pretend like I know, but I can't tell you, which is just a guise for, I don't fucking remember. <laughs> <laughs> so we have this moment where, where I think Z is facing a moment of pride, a moment of, of, of identifying pride issues. So, and I feel like this was written in as a, as a moment that a future indicator that he is going to have to face this. And that he is going to have to tell the team how he came across the first shard. And he's going to have to tell them why. But we're not there yet. I think this is just a foreshadowing of the fact that, you know, he's thinking in his head, well, this is how I got it. But I'm not going to tell them that. And I'm going to try to avoid having to bring them in. And yet at the same time, I wonder if they're all in and if they're all in danger with them. Because imagine also this. Imagine that somebody comes to you. And you know all of this shit. Like you've got great ideas as to you know where the next key is and all this kind of thing. And then they come to you and say, "Oh, by the way, we only have eight hours left to live. No pressure." <laughs> when they should have brought their asses in sooner. I mean, imagine that. Imagine somebody comes to you. You know you can't log out. There's something you needed to do. You can't log out. You can't leave the oasis. And then and then the you know the owner of the oasis comes humbly and says, yeah, I think I'm going to need your help because if you don't help us, we're all going to die and we can't figure it out. Oh, and by the way, eight hours left. Sorry, we've burned through so much time. Under pressure. <laughs> uh, it, it, Parsifal, I feel like, is going to get shit from around the table. He deserves a lot of shit. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely the wrong decision to make, but we press on. The once mighty hero has fallen. So... Parzival pulls the shard out of his inventory because it's ringing in his ears now that they are at the gate. I hate tenderness. And it changes before his eyes. And it says, Niniku and Zaymon aren't alone on her roster. Once you reclaim her castle, you must face her imposter. And this is a new message that's being presented because they're so close to the gate. That sort of indication that you're in the right place. You need to press forward. I'll tell you, it's really good that Shota was around, huh? It helps. But towards the end here, before they pop through the gate, they all decide to get decked out in their original Gunter garb, which is kind of cool, right? I mean, it's, you know, they're bringing the band back together. They're pulling the suits out. They're getting the instruments dusted off, you know, and, you know, they throw up the mirror. Look at those handsome devils. Shoot the fucking mirror. Now they're going to go through. And it's it's really that kind of, you know, uh, the three amigos back together again. Well, four amigos, technically. It felt like that scene was written for the movie. <laughs> you, you get that feeling of finally they're back together again. Like it's, it's this moment where they are now on the quest. They're committed to it. They've they've come back to their original Gunter selves, and and they're gonna press forward. Like they, they've they've donned their attire. It's almost like a superhero brushing off the the superhero suit. <laughs> <laughs> brushing off the suit. Honey, where is my super suit? <laughs> where is my super suit? Exactly. You get it. So that's, that's kind of a, that's kind of a cool way of, uh, of going about it. And then boom, they jump into the Ninja princess portal. End scene. End scene. <laughs> so we kind of hit this. Uh, this was a pretty good chapter. Yeah, it kind of it, it first off, it, it, it relieves us in the fact that, you know, a main character didn't die, that she's, you know, going to be with us. 
they they jump into the problem solving. You know, they've solidified their hate against their enemy, which you know, ironically enough, is Halliday. Mm. And uh, and now we've come back into them being their full Gunter selves. So it really feels like all the way into chapter what eleven that we have solidified ourselves back into the roles that we loved from the first book. It had only took eleven chapters to get there. And some of those chapters were very long feeling. Somewhat painful. Yeah. yeah. This is this is what we were wanting to get to. And I get it. You needed those 10 chapters in order to get you to this place. In order to sort of rationalize the situation that they're in and to, to sort of set up the 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 history, the context. Yeah. I mean I, I very distinctly remember reading the book and getting to this point and being like Fuck, finally. Okay, finally, it's going to start picking up because it was just, you know, I had to read this very late in the, you know, in the night and I'm, I was... You're oh tired, God, you're worn out, you're... Tired, worn out. Patience has dwindled and you're like, come on, really? I was so happy when things really started to pick up and get interesting or mm-hmm. more interesting. And it started to feel a lot more like the first book, which was... Of course, a, a huge help. I might add that it, I don't think that it had to feel like the first book to be a good book, but the nostalgia of the nostalgia, right, yeah. uh, is is helpful. That, that okay, you know, it's does it need to be like the first book to be good? No, it doesn't. But it kind of feels like it does, or that we at least have to to pull from the first book, you know, same, but different. And you had yeah. getting that balance just right is difficult. I totally get it. I was certainly looking forward to pressing on from here on out. And I'm looking forward to seeing your response from the future chapters because we've got, you know, we're on to the second shard and there's going to be five more shards. So that's a lot mm-hmm. more problem solving left and it's going to be fun. I agree. All right. Anything else that we missed? One of my notes from the first, my first read through this, I remember thinking when Faisal gave Parzival the ring, it it just kind of had this air of the curator in the movie giving Parzival the coin. Okay. And again, like it's been a long time since I wrote that note. So like, I don't quite remember exactly what else I was thinking about that because like now that I read it again, they're round and made of metal, but yeah, like there really wasn't wasn't much to it other than that. It's like he removes a, a small silver ring from his inventory and tossed it to him, and you know, so like I guess he tossed it to him in the movie. Oh, that's true. He flicked it at him, but you know, the difference is there is that he knows what this ring's going to do for him. He had no idea what the coin would do for him. Yeah, and it's not an artifact; you know, it's just a thing. He didn't win the he didn't win the coin. He, I mean, he won the coin. He didn't win the ring. But I mean, I get you. The things metal, the things round, and it got tossed at him. Yeah, that was. Do you, you know, I mean, do, do you feel like if this chapter was in the movie that this is a movie worthy chapter? I think like this chapter of of anything that we've read would be would could be in the movie and very true to the chapter, right? Explosion, you know, Samantha burns and scrapes, anger, you know, donning the the old suits, the super suits. Yeah, I mean, I could see this being played out in a movie format pretty easily. Like of all the chapters, like this would be one of those pivotal pivotal moments that would of conflict and confrontation. Yeah. That if of all the chapters we've read, I felt like this would be one that would have to be in the movie. It's like an Avengers movie or something, you know. It's like the conflict is is clear and present, and everybody's got to get their shit together and deal with the problem. Yeah, this is the the game is a foot chapter. Ooh, a right? foot. Well, no, not that kind of foot. Put your foot down. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it kind of felt like that, you know. Uh, that if you're going to stick this, if anything's going to be in the movie, this would be one of those chapters that should be in the movie because there's just so much going on in this chapter that that turns into action from a number of directions. I don't know. That's just kind of how I felt about it. So the only other thing that I wrote about, which was a bit of an earlier reference, when they referred to Halliday as being a fucking toaster. Yeah. And the thing that popped in my head when I read that was from Ghostbusters 2, where they make the toaster kind of come alive and dance. By insulting it or playing music. By by playing music. And then 
Venkman pretend, you know, puts his you know fingers through the slots and says, "Oh, there's got to be like a switch or something on it." And then he starts pretending like it's eating him, and it's like, "Ah, how could you fall for the old man eating toaster trick?" That's what that made me think of. Is like, "Oh, you're a fucking toaster." I don't know. That just popped in my head. It has nothing to do with why they mentioned toaster. It was just. I'm just saying the synapses in my brain connected your fucking toaster with the made eating toaster trick line from Ghostbusters 2. And that is all I have to say about that. You can cut that all out. No, no, no. I, I, it, it, every time where you've dealt with a conscious toaster in pop culture, and, you know, we might be talking about uh, Red Dwarf, you know, where the toaster wants to be more than just a toaster and keeps harassing the crew of Red Dwarf about whether or not they want toast, because the meaning of life for the toaster is to make toast. And while sad, not making toast for anyone is even sadder. Or we could talk about more recent pop culture like Rick and Morty, where quickly at, at breakfast, Rick Sanchez makes a toaster out of some spare parts. And it's not even a toaster. He like makes a robot that then passes butter <laughs> to spread on toast. And he's like, what's the meaning of life? And he's like, to pass me butter for my toast. And he's like, oh my God, what am I? <laughs> it's just this, this level of, of just sheer demeaning. Like if you say you're just a fucking toaster, to say that is, is to really imply that your purpose in life is so drivel and so meaningless as as artificial intelligence that you you know you should be contemplating killing yourself because all you're intended to do is to fulfill the purpose of either providing butter or making toast that's it so i i kind of like the toaster reference myself there are a lot of ways you could like you know reference it but every every form of artificial intelligence toaster or or butter provider for toast is just sad you know, it's an apt insult. As as shallow or as, as stupid and simple as it might be, it's an apt insult in pop culture. Still, you got to have butter on your toast. I agree. But if that was all you did in life, if that's all you were made for and you were conscientious, if you had a conscience and you knew that, would that wouldn't... I mean, it's sad. It's sad. It's a good insult. Aren't we all just toasters? Yeah, but I don't want to think about it. <laughs> on that happy note... <laughs> All right, let's bring it up. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. Thank you for listening, and we will catch you on the next chapter of Ready Player Two. See you. left off with really kind of on a down note, a cliffhanger, if you will, or a life hanger Ooh. where <laughs> I'm trying to remember I, her name. Artemis. Artemis. <laughs> I'm going it's Shoto and Parzival and H and, and who Olivia. the fuck else is C? Do you see uh, after the last episode, I, I'd already bought into the fact that she's probably dead.